This is it, people, the final episode of season six. With our Taste of Science Festival fast approaching, it seemed only fitting to save this one for last, since this recording was made during our national annual retreat and Christy is part of our Houston chapter. A reminder before we log off that we would be hugely grateful to anyone who has the means to support us financially. We're on Patreon and Coffee. that's K-O-F-I, if you can part with the pennies. Or you could throw a couple of stars our way by reviewing our podcast on iTunes. Keep that in mind while you think about how awesome this episode is. All around me are familiar faces Worn out faces, worn out faces Bright and early for the daily races Going nowhere Alrighty, good morning to scientist listeners. Who knows if it's morning for you, it doesn't matter. It's morning for us and we are here today with Dr. Christy Semler. How are you doing, Christy? I'm doing well, you know, waking up and bright, sunshiny day. (laughs) Yes, yes. So for um, people who don't know, we have a project outside of Two Scientists, which is a big old festival called Taste of Science. Check us out at tasteofscience.org. And today we have a lot of our city coordinators with us. Say hello, people. Oh, that worked rather well. Um, So, Christy also happens to be a member of our Taste of Science Houston team. How's that? Uh, It's a lot of fun. I enjoy doing science communication outreach types of things. Uh, So, it's a fun pastime hobby on top of, you know, doing science for a living. And then, uh, you know, other types of hobbies and things like that, too, are starting to branch out from doing everything science related now. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably good for the soul. Mm-hmm. So you are a postdoc at MD Anderson, right? Yes. So um, tell us how it is that you ended up there. What drew you to science? Oh, that's a long and loaded question. So, We're here for you. yes, <laughs> um, I'm a first generation college student, um, and so when I went to college, it was either going to be uh, fine arts or science because those were my two passions previously. Mm-hmm. And everyone was like, "You'll never make a living out of art. Go into science." <laughs> so because we get paid the big bucks. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I'm not a Banksy, so I can't make, you know, a million dollars on a painting either. Um, but it was it was a went to school for science, loved it, got into research in undergrad, uh, decided to go to grad school because I didn't know what that meant. Uh, <laughs> uh, was part of the genomics education project in undergrad. Mm-hmm. And so it exposed me to Washington University in St. Louis, which is where I went and did my my Ph.D., loved it there. And then uh, needed to figure out what to do as a uh, big girl job and (laughs) moved into a postdoc at MD Anderson uh, for that. And now I'm looking into transitioning again and finding the actual what's next. And I have no idea. (laughs) Oh, that's crucial. but your, your current research is obviously on cancer research, being MD Anderson. Can you tell us specifically the kind of work that you're doing? So um, I usually clarify with people that I don't work on cancer directly. Um, I am a adult tissue stem cell researcher um, at a cancer institution, and that works because 
I'm interested in quality of life issues for cancer patients. And so many of the off-target side effects from chemotherapy and radiation treatments, which are still standard of care, um, lead to, you know, sometimes debilitating uh, off-target side effects. And a lot of those uh, side effects are because those treatments will target the adult tissue stem cells as well as they target the tumors. And my research has been looking into how can we lessen those off those off target side effects of the adult tissue stem cells while hopefully still having efficacy of the treatment on the tumor. Okay, so let's backtrack a little bit. Can you explain what the term stem cell actually means? So stem cells are uh, cells in your body that can give rise to a new tissue and they are the cells that will regenerate and replenish tissues as they uh, age or like in the uh, case of your skin as your dead skin cells slough off new ones are generated underneath and that's how the tissue is you know stays the way it's supposed to. Mm -hmm. And so many of our adult tissues have stem cells, not all, but many. Um, and it's those cells that can replicate and regenerate the tissue is what we typically call stem cells. So how is it that you hope to be able to um, utilize stem cells in reducing these kind of off-target effects of chemotherapy? Um, so I don't actually do so right now there's a big interest in like stem cell treatments, taking stem cells from patients and giving them back after changing them in some way to use them for treatment. So I don't actually do that. Okay. Um, my focus is on the stem cells that are already in your body. How do we protect those from the damage or um, make them so that they don't feel the side effects the way that they would be otherwise. And so rather than taking stem cells out or putting new stem cells in, it's more of the stem cells that are already there protecting mm -hmm. those. Okay. Um, and how do you do that? <laughs> um, as we sit here eating breakfast, um, my uh, research actually looks at uh, dietary interventions uh -huh. um, and how uh, those types of uh I use a fasting-induced model of protection, actually. And so, as I say, we're eating breakfast, so we've already broken our fast breakfast. Mm -hmm. um, and in fasting research for aging and longevity and those types of things, many people have been interested in caloric restriction and how that can... Uh, lead to protective beneficial side effects um, from that. And so the minor stress that fasting actually induces will precondition or put stem cells most of the time in a state where they can better deal with a secondary stress, in our mm -hmm. case, our chemotherapy or our radiation. And my research is trying to tease out what that preconditioned state is. Mm -hmm. And then if we can identify that, can we take those bits of information and then either change a cancer patient's diet in order to mimic those effects or give them a vitamin or a pill or things like that that they could take before their treatment to make them feel better mm -hmm. um, as well. So you describe your work as a preclinical. How can you say 
how does that fit into the kind of general model of how research is done and how it reaches the end patient? So uh, preclinical is one of those terms for bench to bedside type of science. And um, preclinical is any research that is done in cell culture or animal models before it gets to a clinical trial in humans. Mm -hmm. And so the preclinical research that I do is actually on mice. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm one, you know, a couple of steps up from just cells in a culture dish, mm -hmm. um, even though mice aren't exactly the same as people. But certain tissues, I study the small intestine, is very similar setup to what the what's in the humans. And so we can use a model organism like mice to model a tissue that's in a human and then study those types of things preclinically. And then if we have promising research, um, that's when you can start opening a clinical trial to, to study then those um, things that you've identified in the preclinical model, whether or not if they're the true and the same in the human model. Mm -hmm. So did you ever get squeamish about using mice? Yes, um, I did uh, a model organism uh, rotation actually in grad school. So I didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't have like a set goal in mind. Um, I went to grad school being like, I like science, let's do this. Um, and so uh, my rotations for when I was trying to select a lab were mice, zebrafish and cell culture. Um, so not related at mm -hmm. all, um, but having that exposure has made me a better scientist, well-rounded. I understand a lot of different uh, preclinical models. Um, and then mice was, um, they are cute and fuzzy and cuddly, and so we all have like attachments, and it's not the easiest job in the world. We all mm -hmm. care about our research animals. We all want to make sure that they are provided the best care while they're undergoing uh, our research. And so it's it was difficult initially, um, mm -hmm. but it's one of those things that you have to cope with because you know that the research is important and you know that it can make an impact later. Mm -hmm. um, and we're not going to do that research on humans, so yep. we have to do it somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> And while we're working on the, the computer models and so on, better kind of tissue models and so on, this is this is what we've got. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Mo these models are, are what we have and it's the best way that, so fasting, as I said, it's, it's something that affects the entire body, the entire organism. And it's really difficult to model that when it deals with so many systems that change with one thing that you're doing. Mm -hmm. And you people have tried modeling fasting in culture and those types of things and there's always something that they miss mm -hmm. because you're not it's not the whole organism and yeah. so being able to do that type of research in an organism is the only way that we can capture everything that can happen when you fast yeah so um you're talking briefly about going to grad school and you said you're a first generation college student yes we've been talking to a lot of people recently about like the kind of the barriers that they face going into science and doing research did you feel like as that first generation there were issues for you yes um it's difficult to be a first generation college student um 
when you're privileged, which in a way I was, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, but it's also difficult when you don't have the proper mentors at times to be able to guide you. Um, And it's also difficult when you are interested in everything and don't have that direction. Um, But at least for getting into science for me, I had the people who encouraged me to do science, even though none of us knew what that meant. Um, And then it was difficult to relate to people who weren't first generation college students or their parents have PhDs or like those types of things. And I learned a lot from interacting with people who weren't like me um, throughout my, my scientific career. But some of those barriers were, you know, financial, some of them were social. Um, But I really, you know, developed a core group of people that could help support me through those types of things. And I know those aren't available for everyone. So I was lucky in that I was able to build that type of network to support me going through things that I didn't even understand what I was doing. I was just like, I think this is the next step. And I'm just going to do it. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is this is hugely overlooked for grad students in general, that people from every background need that kind of training going into the system. Like e- I suspect even the people whose parents have PhDs have absolutely no idea what hits them when they start a particular program. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's... It's something that I, th- I believe that more and more people are working on, but I'm not sure even the grad student program that I know of um, has anything in place to kind of support students coming into the system and just answering the most basic questions like uh, what does it feel like to do a PhD? Mm -hmm. And I I think more and more um, as standardized tests and things like that are starting to be questioned people are starting to look at the models of grad school and the step you know you have to jump through this hoop and then jump through this hoop and then jump through this hoop Mm -hmm. and we still need milestones in training but it's more or less of how do we capture the people then that those milestones are either harder to achieve or that they need more support and identify them so that they can get that support and still succeed Mm -hmm. um rather than just letting people flounder for a while. I mean, no one wants to spend 10 years in grad school doing their PhD. No one. (laughs) (laughs) No one. No one. Um, And so it's, and sometimes that's a, your project just doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And then we have to start thinking about, well, it's important to get the negative research out there so that we can learn from that because then otherwise someone else is just going to waste time Mm -hmm. repeating all of those negative things. And I think a lot of people who spend a large amount of time in grad school is because you're always looking for something positive. And Mm -hmm. we more often than not are going to find the negative. It's not this. It's not that. You know, like Edison, you know, I I discovered, you know, over 300 ways about how not to make a light bulb. (laughs) So as, you know, research scientists, we, we do these things and we think we know the best way to do things, but we always need to get input and improve then. And I think grad school education, postdoc mentorship, all of those types of things, you know, the the world, the economy, everything's changing and we need to like reevaluate how we actually do those things. Yeah, the, the irony is that we're all in science and we don't seem to use scientific principles to plug into the system to make sure the students get the best experience that they possibly can. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes, though, that the scientific method for that would be a, a rigid in itself mm-hmm. to, to do that. So trying to bring in 
you know, scientific principles, but also trying to bring in more social science on some of that too, to be able to bring in the mentorship, the support to get people from point A to point B, no matter how windy of a road that Mm. that is. Yeah. So that we have a very different experience in the UK. Anyone who got an education from there is like, you've got three years, four years if you're lucky, and then you run out of money and you're out of there. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think they're, they're less harsh on publication records amongst other things so a dear friend of mine he um he didn't get any publications as a result of his phd but because he you know he explained why he did what he did he still managed to successfully defend and get the hell out of there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah i mean and, and those are the types of things too that we could learn from uh, like i said there's there's all of that i mean i have negative data in my thesis like i know our current lab has a ton of negative data that we're just going to sit on Mm -hmm. um, because there's less of an avenue for the good job praise that then goes along with funding or, or publication records or those types of things. And there are some of those like negative result journals, but for such highly trained scientists of, well, what's the story behind that? Mm -hmm. It didn't work (laughs) (laughs) or it worked. It just didn't give us what we thought it was going to do. So um, it's just, it's a lot harder for people to wrap their heads around how to present that kind of information because it seems like it's all orphaned. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So does anybody have any questions? Oh, David's sending me stuff. David doesn't like going on the microphone. (laughs) so uh first of all he says are stem cells particularly at risk during cancer treatment yes so tumors are able to be targeted by chemotherapy and radiation because they are exquisitely sensitive to those damaging agents because they're usually highly replicative, meaning that they're making more of themselves at a faster rate than your normal tissue normally, Mm -hmm. except for most stem cells. Because stem cells are replenishing your tissues, they also have to divide and replenish the tissue, which also makes them exquisitely sensitive to these treatments. And um, there's terminology called therapeutic window of where is that sweet spot of being able to target the cancer and leave the collateral damage on the rest of your tissues to a minimum. And if we can find those sweet spots, that's the people that don't feel as bad during chemotherapy or radiation treatment. And that's difficult to do because most people have heard horror stories about people on chemo and it's it's very anxiety inducing treatment. Like mm-hmm. no one wants chemo because of these side effects that happen. And looking into how do we understand the stem cells better? How are they different from the tumors? And how can we hopefully protect them and not the tumor could vastly improve just even standard of care treatment to just improve quality of life while you're on treatment. Mm -hmm. Even if you don't increase the efficacy of the treatment to the tumor, as long as you don't lessen it, that is where we can make leaps and bounds on improving lives of cancer patients Mm -hmm. um, in while we're still working on personalized cancer therapies, because um, if we're all honest about it, the you know standard of care therapies aren't going away anytime soon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so I'm painfully aware that pretty much anybody we've spoken to about cancer on this podcast, they're not going for the cure. 
because that's sure that's a lofty goal but um, what most people are trying to do is either improve current treatments or, uh, like you say, the, the kind of care that you're talking about, which means that people just have a better quality of life. And I'm wondering, I mean, maybe you don't know the numbers, but I'm wondering how much effort goes into that kind of research versus the, you know. Um, so MD Anderson has a new center, and I say new because it's like less than a decade old, of a... Uh, Center for Energy Balance and Cancer Prevention. And that's a lofty goal because they're trying to do things to change human behavior to lessen the risk of cancer becoming a thing. Um, there's not, a, from my knowledge, except for a couple of research institutes in around the world that do stem cell research, that it's it's difficult to say how do we tackle the quality of life issues because everyone it's 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 become that um mainstay of oh that's just business as usual it's expected mm -hmm. you're going to feel terrible like it's part of the therapy and it's like no it doesn't have to be mm -hmm. um and i think more and more people are realizing that we can and should be doing these types of research to improve quality of life but it's also it's difficult because how do you assay quality of life improvements and that's where you get into um, having to ask questionnaires and then you have subjective answers and those types of things and it's harder to quantify. Yeah. Um, whereas if we can directly change therapeutic windows of where you have a quantifiable amount that you can protect a stem cell by, that you know that you can either increase the dose of chemotherapy to make it more effective against the tumor or you leave the dose where it is and then you don't feel as crappy while you're getting your treatment. I mean, both of those are a win because mm -hmm. um, you're either treating the tumor better or you don't feel as bad. And yep. both of those are a win for the patient. Yeah, absolutely. Um, he also says, you mentioned standard of care treatments, but MD Anson now has a Nobel laureate and uh, is a pioneer in immunotherapy. Do those treat stem cells better? I am outside of my field of knowledge on that. Um, I do know that immunotherapy is an important therapy to look at in conjunction with chemotherapies and radiation, and it's always the chicken and the egg. It's mm -hmm. um, what order do you give treatments in when you're doing combinations, and do you know immunotherapies re-educate your immune system yes does it do that because it re-educates the stem cells to then re-educate everything i'm not as well versed in how it it works for those types of things but anything that will help give a durable lasting response will have some stem cell like type cell that's been educated so that it can have that information retained in your system okay is this more your bag Samia? <laughs> I'm afraid of that. <laughs> you want to come and try an answer? We are going to have a guest star in the form of Samia. Okay. Hey, Samia. Hi. <laughs> I am a little out of my depth and knowledge of the stem cell side of immunotherapy. Um, but in general, I guess here we have to make a basic di distinction between which kind of immunotherapy we are talking about. Um, and uh, that also dictates how long lasting it is. So if we are talking about antibody therapy, where we are just using 
um, antibody to block off certain pathways, then it's not a long-lasting thing. And you are giving uh, repeated doses of those antibodies to block certain signaling pathways um, to basically remove the brakes off of immune system um, and to make them better at attacking cancer cells. Um, and we have those, that, those breaking mechanisms present um, in the normal immune system to make sure our immune cells don't go in overdrive mode and don't over, uh, are not overactive. But then um, cancer cells kind of hijacks that system to its own benefit and use those breaking mechanisms to escape immune attack. Mm -hmm. um, and you are just basically using something to block that whole breaking mechanism so that they resume their normal function. And in that case, I am not sure if that involves stem cell. Mm -hmm. um, but then the other form of immunotherapy is more cell-based, where you are actually um, CAR T cell, cell therapy, which is um, engineering your own T cells to make them better or more efficient or basically arming them to be able to attack cancer cells. And so some of uh, your immune cells may not have all the um, may not be armed properly to be able to efficiently kill cancer cells. And in that case, you are just taking out patients' T cells and then um, educating them, engineering them basically to provide them the right uh, proteins or molecules on their surface that they can then put, be put back into the patient and then they can attack cancer cells better. Um, that is supposed to be more long-lasting because you're putting the cells back in and then cell can divide and replicate and can keep on doing that. Mm -hmm. uh, but I would have no idea on how that would affect um, or how that would engage the stem cell branch of the body. Yeah. So there's a gap, is what we're trying to say. <laughs> um, before you run away from the mic, introduce yourself. Um, I'm Samia. I'm a postdoc at Stanford, and I'm studying cancer immunology there. And how do you know us? <laughs> <laughs> well, I happen to run the SF part of Taste of Science. <laughs> Splendid. You are free to go. <laughs> so this is this is a slightly more detached question, um, but David says, you know, given your background as first generation college educated person, what triggered your interest in science, or was it purely the money? <laughs> <laughs> Not purely money. Um, I was always really inquisitive um, and asked questions that people couldn't answer, mm -hmm. and so. That's where, like, kind of science and art were together because I could do what I wanted in art and no one had to really understand what the hell I was doing <laughs> as long as I understood what I was doing. And science was the way to get at answers for things. And um, actually, it was the, the first time that I understood that p science could also be a hobby was um, as early as fifth grade. I had a teacher who... Um, in his spare time monitored moths 
and oh. their populations and those types of things. And so he was like just a citizen scientist who kept track of all of this information, but he'd go to like conferences and other types of things. And he was known for doing those types of things, even though he was just a fifth grade science teacher and was like, hey, this is so awesome. That's really cool. <laughs> yes. Uh, so what's your artistic outlet then? Um, typically it's painting, um, but it's, you know, I, I will sketch occasionally and, and those types of things, uh, but painting's normally my go-to. Um, I haven't been at a pottery wheel in a while, but I, I basically, similar to science and doing a lot of different things, like I learned pottery and printmaking and clothing design and, um, sculpture all these other types of things because I was curious I wanted to know how to do them and it was a nice outlet for something that wasn't science as Mm -hmm. well and so as much as I like doing things for science communication and that's a hobby I usually need some other outlet besides and so um, art was one um, that has kind of slowed down a little bit and then I recently picked up photography um, and then that has slowed down a little bit, and now I've picked up axe throwing. <laughs> As you do. I was wondering what the hell that gesture Pedro was making was. <laughs> I was hoping she would mention it because okay. it's cool. <laughs> That is, that is amazing. How does one get into axe throwing? Um, so there's a, there's a league in Houston. Um, of course there is. <laughs> No, it's not. It's actually nationwide. Um, and there is the World Axe Throwing League. So every city that has um, an axe throwing location, most of them have a league as well. And they go through league play. And then if you're Waddle certified, um, they have... <laughs> if you're Waddle certified? World, World Axe Throwing League. Okay. Waddle certified. Um, and you go through your playoffs. There's actually citywide and then nationwide playoffs as well where you're competing in axe throwing. But again, it's a, it's a carryover like curling from... Canada um like Canada's big on all of those types of things and then people in the U.S. were like we can do it better (laughs) so we will can you I I have no idea (laughs) I just have fun with it (laughs) what was that Pedro how is X throwing related to curling those seem like because they both come from Canada (laughs) it's a tenuous link but it's there (laughs) so um (laughs) I'm sorry I can't get off this subject now um how does one start axe throwing and what does the competition entail? Like, is it a distance thing? Is it a target? It's thing? a target. Okay. Um, so I got into axe throwing because friends had done it. And then we found that there was a place in Houston to try it. So we did it. We liked it. And then I was like, oh, hey, you know, they have league play. Why not? So I just recently joined a couple weeks ago. But there's there's basically target on wood panels and you compete against yourself and everyone else Mm -hmm. um and there's points on the target just like darts only you're throwing axes and they you get x number of points for where you hit on the target and you just it's a total summation of your points by the end of the league for then where you go into the playoff settings (laughs) this is just so seriously badass (laughs) I want to try. Yeah, Sounds I mean, they, they, I mean, they, you should definitely look around in your city. They they are 
in various places where I know there's one in Philly. I know that there's one in Boston. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a place in Denver here in Houston. There's other cities too. Like if you just search for them, they're not always called like mm-hmm. axe. Th- some, I think the one in Denver is like bad axe throwing. Um, <laughs> so it's, it's like searching for it and, you know, go try it out. It's fun. <laughs> absolutely fascinating. Oh, the secret life of science. <laughs> Yes. Well, it was that or roller derby, and I was like, I'll try the axe throwing first. Oh, yeah, they're, they're, it definitely seems like less effort. I would also love to try roller derby, but I haven't roller skated since I was 12. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'd break something. Mm-hmm. Um, Instead, you can break some wood, so. Yeah. Um, so, going back to the science. Uh, uh, as much as I don't want to. <laughs> Woo, science. Um so Pedro says, uh, can you comment on uh, fasting as a dieting fad? How much research is there behind it and the potential health implications? Yeah, so um, fasting as a, as a diet uh, fad is more recent, but fasting as an intervention has been around for a lot longer. Um, and it's also provided natural things to study so like during ramadan there's people will fast Mm -hmm. and people who have had chemotherapy or radiation and cancer treatment during ramadan we're we've been able to study those populations for a little while on things as well so like there's there's natural instances of where fasting has been a part of like a religious or other types of things and now it's becoming the um, as aging and longevity research usually precedes some of the stem cell cancer research, um, they have looked at calorie restriction and those for increasing lifespan. And part of that is through its effect on stem cells and those types of things as well as it regenerates your tissues and looking into how we can harness that kind of information. And so, um, fasting now, like there's the intermittent fasting, there's calorie restriction, there's all of these different types of ways to do fasting now. Mm-hmm. Um, and how beneficial they are in the long term, we still don't know. Like the human trials that are for calorie restriction are still underway. So we don't know how much that they're going to extend life or decrease incidence of cancer. So this is one of those um interventions that people think if you do periodic fasting that you can reset your body and hopefully decrease your risk of cancer and those types of things but we're still too soon in the infancy of people dabbling in this to actually know how how effective it's going to be we do know in some of those preclinical models though that multiple rounds of fasting even with Um, cancer-inducing insults, usually fasting will decrease the rate at which uh, cancer will develop in those models as well. So we know that there's these protective effects, but again, no one really knows what, how everything is happening. Otherwise, we'd all be taking a fasting pill. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I think the problem is these things always come with a very shiny marketing campaign mm-hmm. and people are very, very quick to jump on the bandwagon. Mm-hmm. Um, thanks for that, Gwyneth Paltrow. <laughs> Her and Goop together. Yeah. Um, were there any more questions? For those that don't remember Virginie, she was our guest at our last retreat, weren't you? Yes, I, w- I was. 
<laughs> so what's your question? Um, maybe just a naive question. I don't exactly know when you study cancer in mice. Um, do you do treatment on, on them, like chemotherapy? And, and if, do you see the same like, side effects than in humans or something? So this is going to sound um, very morbid or uh, unnecessarily harsh. So I actually use um, very high doses of chemotherapy in my model, um, things that humans would never get in order to study the effects better. Mm -hmm. um, but mice, if you treat them with radiation, they're f they, can, they will first can lose their fur, and then the stuff that grows in will be white. Um, so especially if you're doing it on a black mouse. So we know that some of the same side effects that happen um, for cancer treatments will happen to the animals as well. Um, mice don't actually have a regurgitation response. Um, so if you give them chemotherapy, that won't happen, but certain chemotherapies and eating everything like that can induce diarrhea in mice. And you can like measure those types of side effects as well. Um, you can also monitor like neutropenia and white blood cell fallout from a lot of these types of treatments as well. Um, my models, um, I don't normally have tumors in my mice because I'm first trying to figure out what fasting is doing without that as a complication. And then we layer in a tumor model later that we will, you know, implant tumors and then do the fasting and see how fasting is both affecting the normal and the cancer tissues. Because um, each cancer is unique and some cancers will respond to fasting on their own by being like, I don't like this and die mm -hmm. a little bit. Um, and other ones are just like, I could care less and I'm still going to grow and it doesn't matter. So um, lots of other labs are looking at how fasting is impacting cancer cells. Um, but th there's just a few of us that have been looking at if you have a tumor if you fast, what's happening in the normal tissues and potentially the cancer at the same time so that we can get this better interplay of how can we take these preclinical models then and which types of cancers with which biomarkers would be best for these types of interventions. Well, on that note, I will say thank you so much for meeting with us today, Christy. I mean, it's been super interesting with regards to the research and your extracurricular activities. Yes, um, I try to keep life interesting, so. <laughs> you succeeded. Yeah, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. No expression, no expression. At my head I want to drown my sorrow. No tomorrow. Two or three years ago at the Taste of Science Festival, I like popped my knee and was ended up on crutches for like three weeks. And um, my I was having problems and I had to like go into work on a weekend. Um, but I was hobbling around so bad that my fiance came with me. And actually, I'm sitting on like a rolly chair, like going around and trying to tell him and instruct him how to do a Western blot. And he's an engineer and has no idea. So I'm like, that solution in there, shake it for a little while. No, 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 put it on the shake. Yes, turn the shaker on. Thank you. <laughs> 
so you you did marry him. Uh, we will be getting married in January. So congratulations. <laughs> Thanks to Christy, the star of this episode, and a huge shout out to our friend and Taste of Science Houston City coordinator, Pedro Sampaio, for letting us invade his home for much of the retreat. Thanks also to John Flynn, Samia, Virginie Gabel, and Ben Pruitt for being there that weekend and for being part of our Taste of Science family. Our Festival for Grown Ups is a celebration of science taking place during the last full week of April. Head to tasteofscience.org to find out if we're in a city near you. This beautiful cover of Mad World comes to you thanks to the kind permission of Houston-based jazz vocalist Danielle Reich. Please go and listen to the rest of her stuff on her website, which we'll link on our page. As we head into recording hibernation, we'd like to remind you that we like to keep you updated of our episodes using social media. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram using the handle Two Scientists, and on Twitter using Two SCIS Two Size. Or, if you want email updates, you can subscribe to those on our website twoscientists.org. Until the next time, friends, this is your host, Pambe Bahia, saying farewell, but not goodbye. through the forest <laughs> <laughs> that's staying in um. <laughs>